I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A grain of rice. A grain of rice. If you want to tip the scale, just remember that then. There's a small bit of a needle there. Come on, Mayo. You've got to get Andy Moran into the game. Our mission was to show us. Then we're no longer the whipping boys of Munster. Okay, folks, how are you all doing? Uh, the weather is, is fantastic, and I hope uh, you're all enjoying it, and it's making our lives easier. We're in the first phase of um, lockdown being slightly lifted, and I suppose it's, it's making it a bit easier on older people to get out and do the, the 5Ks and that kind of thing. Uh, we'll be in that bracket ourselves fairly soon, anyway, the way things are going. Um, but look, no, um, hopefully we stick with it, and, and, and you know, things numbers are starting to look good, so... On that respect, but uh, today we're kind of shooting the breeze. But we've we've a great, interesting topic. Uh, we have we have Larry, uh, we have TJ, and we have Mark. So we're just going to talk maybe a bit about you know our experiences on maybe sports psychology or dressing rooms or different managers approaches or stuff that worked, stuff that didn't work. Maybe some funny stories. Um, and I suppose look what what kind of led us into thinking about this maybe was. Look, at the whole the world and his mother are talking about the Michael Jordan sort of documentary on Netflix, uh, The Last Dance. And, you know, his experience of the Chicago Bulls being no-hopers for years and years until they signed this, this guy as a, as a third-choice draft, I think. Um, and, like, he goes on to be possibly the greatest player of all time. But, like, you know, just some mad stuff on it. And some people have commented that there was an element of kind of nearly bullying on it by him. Do you know that he would he would <clears> demand <throat> so much of his of his fellow players, and and he, to the point where he nearly made dirt to them in some ways in training just to show them up. And Phil Jackson was the coach, and in some ways Jackson goes down as maybe for me the greatest coach ever. Now, and I I include Bill Check and that I, I I'm going to include Cody and in that because for me this is the greatest pack of fruitcakes of a team that you ever came across. So, like and like. He handled it in his own way. And I think an awful lot of the managers I would have dealt with, even myself managing, I wouldn't have handled it the same way. So it's just an interesting one, lads, and I'm one to kick off on. And I suppose this, you know, we've, have, we've looked at it and, and there, there are similarities between Jordan, maybe in a, a Roy Keane type figure, a Paul O'Connell type figure to a kind of milder extent. Now, I wouldn't have Paulie down as been, but I'd say his standards were fairly savage. Yeah, I mean, look... And you're right, you probably better throw Alex Ferguson into that mix there now with the great coaches and stuff like that. But, um, and like his dressing room had a, a fair few, I want to say fruit cakes, but they had, there was a lot of stuff like from the David Beckham on one side of things to, we'll say, Roy Keane on the other side. And um, look, it was an unbelievable documentary, I would have to say. And do you know what? I, you know, the most amazing thing is that you get to 12 o'clock at night and you'd be saying to yourself, look, 
that episode is over now. Will I watch another one? I wonder. Will I want it? Will I want it? And then, oh, look, so there's only 55 minutes. And this will be a shorter 55 minutes than the previous one. Of course, you're already cutting yourself. But it was a case that you wanted to watch the next one because it finished on something very interesting and you wanted to see the next step. But, um, you know, I think we've all been in been in volumes, Anthony, where it is club or county that had, we'll say, one or two leaders and they certainly were driving the rest of the players because the top players, I think, in most teams always have a streak in them that, you know, and the other thing that I saw out of Jordan is that every time something tried to put it up to him, he put him back in his box or he delivered on the scoreboard and that became with his teammates, whether it was messing around in a 5v5 or it was when he was in Walt Disney, remember the when he brought in groups of fellas and they were like he was after doing a full day's work and then he went out and he played for like I couldn't get over that he used to play for a bit of crack for three or four hours a night. Like like that was phenomenal for me. But coming back to the main point on the bullying or the intimidation, I think we've all been involved in, in both intercounty and clubs where there's always one key fella that's the tone and sets the standards and Ultimately, there's a few, always a few lazy fellas that are dragging the lead, and they're going to get picked out. Like there's no point in saying otherwise. Like, and you know, I think most successful teams will always point back that there was one person or maybe two that always set the tone, and it was up to us then to lift it. And I suppose one thing I always recognise with my club and fellas would always say to me after is when the lads came back from the training, there was a different bite to club training. Yeah. And all of a sudden, there was a different standard required, and there was no missing. So that was the one thing that that, that stood out for me uh, from coming back from into county back to club. Taylor, I suppose the subjects like motivation, stroke, psychology in modern day hurling has probably moved from maybe when we were involved in nineties into the nineties to where we are today. It's a huge subject, even in life. Um, I suppose massively involved like things like weight loss, training, even life coaches for people in business. But what, what is motivation and what drives people? Well, I suppose for me, I suppose motivation is really a reason for acting in a particular way. And like there has been people just exceptionally good at being able to motivate. Like even you, Delo, in fairness, last night, night before, we were telling you about this topic, I was ready, I was nearly tagged out, ready to go and ready to play. And like, there are people who are exceptionally good at it. One of the things that we, in sports, definitely tend to put hand in hand is we definitely put success with somebody who's been motivating. Like, I suppose to be fair to some people, there's been brilliant teams maybe who haven't won in All-Ireland and there's been very good motivators. Me, personally, I was, I was fortunate to be involved in that Limerick team in the 90s and we had Tom Ryan. I'm not sure whether Tom was uh, a boss, a motivator, a psychologist, a nutcase. He, he was, there was a kind of a, a concoction of all of them in there, but he, TJ, certainly, he certainly had the dressing room. TJ, a lovely bit of Limerick ham. Yeah. He was some character like that, wasn't he? He, he was an incredible character. And when, like, when, do, when these people spoke, when, when Tom spoke in the dressing room, you listened and he got to people and he just was able, he was able to get the best. And like, that was a team or a dressing room now of big characters. And I, I was just came on the scene, like if Mike Hoolan roared at me or Kerry or Kerby or Jared Hegarty, I did what I was told because that was just the scene. You, I was lucky to be there in my own sense. But... Tom was able to get to these guys. He was able to press the buttons. So, like, if you look at like motivational speaking all around the world in all walks of life is huge today. 
I would say Tom Ryan, and I listened to him there recently uh, speaking at an event that we had for 94, and he's, he's still very entertaining, but he's able to push the right buttons. And I think he was able to get a force that kind of guided behaviour in that Limerick team just driving forward, and I suppose that's the key for any motivator. But I think, TJ, you, you hear it, like, and the gas thing about it is, like, you had a long career, to be fair to you, at the, at the top level, you had the longest career, the three of us, and, like, you had more managers nearly than if you played for Newcastle United, to be honest with you. <laughs> I did, I did. I was, actually, I was actually last night trying to write down the managers from underage school a county club now, and it's north of 30, actually, the number, right? So oh, there's, there's, been, there's been a huge of them, and I've some brilliant characters. Like, obviously, I had Cregan and Padjo, John McKenna, Richie uh, at the club. We had people like um, Brendan Bonner from Cashel, who was very influential, basically, for me early on. And we had Tony Constant, who got us over the line in 2005. And again, a very, very strong character in the dressing room. But we also have to link this, and Mark, and you probably thought about your teams, is like in order to be able to go into the dressing room and to be able to drive fellas and get fellas going, everything else has to be right. Like you can't, you can't get the motivation inside the dressing room right if the training and fellas aren't buying into it, the certain condition in the coach and, and everybody's on board. It really is kind of maybe the charity on top or basically the last piece of furnish, furnishings of a really good outfit. And that's yeah. very, very important. And all those good motivational guys knew that and they recognised that. Yeah, but I, I would then say, TJ, that in our day, and, and I did, like you know, I was going back over the managers that I've had, and I went back to underage and schools. And you know, the funny thing is that the only fellas that really kept sticking in my head were the fellas that we actually won with. To any of the lads that we didn't have a whole pile of success, I didn't say, Jesus, he made no impression on me. Or, you know, I can't remember something that, that, that actually happened in that scenario. Now, you're right about, you know, uh, players buying into the system and buying into you know the strength, but that's kind of in the common era right now. If you go back to when we were playing, and I and then go back, Teddy Owens and uh, Shawnee McGrath and Donald McCarthy, when uh, Donald O'Connor, when they took over in 1998, they brought in physical training. 98, that's not so long ago. Where we actually did a small bit of weights one night a week, and we sat for the run the tunnels in Parky Creeve. There was no major physical training up to that. Fellas were in reasonable shape. But now coming into the present season, sure, it's, listen, unless you've probably got 40 or 50 in Dragon, you're really not in, you're not in the space like of an inter-county scenario. And that has actually been fed down to the club scene. You must have nearly 12 or 15 fellas in the backroom staff in the club, which I think, I think it's gone crazy, I'll be honest with you, for an amateur game and for lads that are, have, we say, worked during the day, Family. A lot of the inter-county fellas are single without any responsibilities, no mortgage and stuff like that. But for club fellas, most of them have young families. And I, I think it's gone crazy. And like The psychology side of it, I, I must say, for me, um, trust was the big thing. It wasn't about all the palaver that they were bringing. If I trusted the manager, if his heart was in the right place, he may not be the best speaker. He may not have the best systems but you trusted him that he was doing the right thing for the players. That was the big thing for me on the psychology. Once I could trust the fella, he got 100% from me. But if, I, if the other fella that I thought was a bit doing the back door, it didn't suit me, I must say, I'd have to say. You but know? You, know, you know, Mark, there, like, you'd you be on about, you know, the managers and when you won, like, obviously, you know, and for me, you wouldn't have been running around tunnels in... Parky Keeve only for TJ with Dave Mahidi and us with Mike Mack started to win things and you know and like 
But like just on that, like we'd say, I say the only thing in common did have well the, the two things that have in common would be a love of hurling and a love of greyhounds. But TJ mentioned Tom Ryan and you Jimmy Barry, right? But for me, <laughs> no one bought to them, right? I wouldn't have them as the same people at all, kind of over a team. You know, I, right. I, I couldn't see Jimmy talking some of the speeches. I could nearly visualize uh, Tom doing, you know, about Limerick and the tradition of it. And, you know, like, you know, the fire and brimstone of Tom. Am I right, TJ, at saying fire and brimstone? Oh, absolutely, Delo. Like, um, I can still picture of Tom coming into the dressing room, hanging, like, he, Tom wore a suit there on the side of the line. He hang his jacket in the corner of the dressing room. And you got bought barrels. Like, absolutely fraught coming out of his mouth. Very, very straight to the point and very direct. But it was across the board. Everybody got it. Like, it didn't matter who we were. And it was old school. And I suppose if we go back to maybe ourselves getting motivated and stuff, we would probably had to go to work and your father roared at you and stuff like that. No, it has changed in the modern era where I blame probably some of the mammies for minding and coaxing and looking after all the young fellas and just molly coddling them too much whereas basically when I started to work first like there was just absolutely no possibility of staying at home there. it didn't matter how sick you were whether it was self-inflicted or not you just had to go because it was easier to be at work than be at home so Tom was old school in the sense that it, it was it was driven at you he absolutely showed and roared but it was for the want and the drive but he did have Dave Mahidi behind him he had the science of the training right Things were right on the pitch, and he was doing it. He was trying to be fair to everybody, where he was getting everybody on board. But it was Mark, brilliant stuff. It was brilliant stuff in the dressing room, Dale. Honestly, God, it was I, mad. I, <laughs> I'd love to have seen that. Like, I, I'm just so sorry that, you know, some of the doc, documentaries, like the Paddy O'Shea one in Westmead, and I remember the Galway footballers, and I'd yes. love kind of look now to have been out of the question if you said a team like if, if someone let in a, a camera for one of the seasons, you know. But, Mark, I can't imagine Jimmy Barry giving you both barrels like. Oh, Dela, I'm not joking you. I, I, unbelievable speaking now. That's the first thing. And what a command of the English language, right? And could just stay at a tone all the time that was just above, you know, quiet, right? But very affirmative. And on a lot of occasions, if there was something, so we played a National League game against Waterford, against, and, and Waterford would be managed by a cockman at the time. Jesus, I'll tell you this much now. All, I won't say all hell broke in the team meeting, but was, was, was left in no uncertain terms that a victory was required. And that happened right up the present day as well. Like, you know, so, I mean, Jimmy's love for Cork is, is, came out in speeches. There was absolutely under no circumstances was there going to be an outside a Corkman on a, with an outside team beat any Cork representative like any team? But like, I think. Um, but Mac, all, I would say I would say like Jimmy has such an iconic, I suppose, figure in the GA. I I think myself if Jimmy Barry Murphy came in to my office now and asked me to do something, I'd just go and do it. He like there there are there are some characters who have that type of influence, and to me. Like, I was never in a dressing room with Jimmy Berry. Like, I managed against him, and to me, he always came across as a gentleman. But he definitely had that kind of uh, father figure type of guy that would say, if he asked you to do something, I, I, like you just said a while ago, I think you just wouldn't question it. Well, I, I, and, and, and I can tell you this much, we wouldn't have won the All-Ireland without Jimmy, and I have no problem going on the record that he was 90% 
uh, the main driver was and the contributor. But what Jimmy did was he allowed the Teddy Owens to do his business on the field and coaching and the strength and conditioning and the physical side of things, right? But the strength and conditioning then was very minor in comparison to what it is now, TJ. So, like, yes. and, Anthony, you made a point about, like, Cock were running the tunnels in 98 because of what he done and what TJ's previous teams had done. So, every team is pulling off of everybody else and, and that's where we are currently. But, like, you know... The trusted Jimmy, I, I went back to the underage managers that I dealt with, Paddy Power and Ray Ratchford, right? And we had them over a good number of years. You trusted them because you knew them, you met them on a regular basis, whether it was down the field or down the street or in the pub or having a chat about life in general. There's a different bond between club managers and club selectors than you have with an inter-county fellow because you know in the county you're going to be coming and going anyway and... An inter-county manager doesn't want to have a long-term relationship with you anyway because he's not going to be living close to you. But I, I think, to me, like, and we had this in the Dr. Khan uh, interview, um, Anthony, like, where he, he, he had asked Dr. Khan to get something new for the dressing room for him. And Dr. Khan went to Donald, to Donald Lenehan at the time and said, look, you know, Jimmy's asking me, for the, what can I come up with? And Donald said, he said, have you ever presented the jerseys to the players one-on-one? He said, no, it's never been done. And all of a sudden, inside in the dressing room, next of all, he called out the players and gave them their jerseys. And it was the first time it was ever done. And, and TJ, within 10 seconds, there wasn't a geek in the dressing room. Right. And by the fifth or the sixth fella that was getting his jersey, fellas were starting to stand up on their feet. There was claps going on. There was shouts. And he didn't have to say another word going out to the dressing room, TJ. Because it was just get out of the way because the doors were going to be taken off. And that, like, you know, that came out of nowhere, TJ. Like. I know. We did a bit of that too, Mark. It didn't work for us, though. <laughs> 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 well, I was going to say, Dale, look, give us a, a, little, a little bit of Loch Nan dressing room. I can ima- I'm imagining a little bit similar to Tom Moraine. Well, I tell you now, TJ, I, I was going to throw this at you as well. Like, I'd say you would probably think Loch Nan was the ultimate storyteller in the dressing room and how his defeats with Claire had moulded him and made a man of him and but he, he had this dream and all this. But in actual fact, like you could hardly meet a quieter manager on the day of the game. Do you know? And but like the tours and that's, that's, that's hard to believe in. that honestly doesn't, doesn't come across. Yeah. I definitely did more talking in, in every dressing room for every big game. Brian Lohan did, Ali did um, Shawnee probably um, maybe even Mike McIntoni then Gerald but the Thursday night like he yeah. used to walk us we'd, we'd meet at the halfway line the, the 24 because he'd have got rid of everyone Barrett, besides the 24 so the 24 the two selectors and Colin Flynn probably would always be brought used to walk up to the goal mouth and we'd all go into the net in Cusick Park, because believe that now, like it was like standing in for a 21 in the old days with Anthony Ash taking it, and you're having about 13 on the goal line. <laughs> but, but in fact, there was 24 of us inside the net. Cool, and he would make a speech, and I'm not joking you. And for me, that was part of the gift, TJ, that you had time to soak in that, rather than, you know, the nerves of the dressing room. Like, that Paddy O'Shea documentary where he said, you know, you, Adam, you were fucked out over the line like a law, like a fucking law for bread. Like, but that was definitely a training session speech, obviously. And yeah. for me, that was the, look, then would leave you then and you may not see him again till the, till the Sunday morning. 
but you had those kind of 48, 72 hours to think about the message. And I think that's probably where he was ahead of his time, if you know what I mean. Yes. We probably, we, we definitely got a flavour of that in Tony Cancelin in the club. Like, yeah, we had a good side and we were very close to winning the county, but he did a bit, good bit of that with us Thursday night for that matches. And like, you know, for us going to a county final against Kilmallock, like we were a club that had never won a county. Like Gareth Man had never won a county. hasn't won a senior county since, but 2005. And the whole psychology of just going down the stretch, we needed that. We like, we like, you know, a team that has never won a county before, last seven or eight or ten minutes, even for us experienced fellas, and we said Frankie and Cole, like, and Donny and them who've been around a long time, even John Kiley, right? We needed somebody just to just steer us and drive us. And it was his psychology, I would say, through those couple of weeks that just drove it home and I suppose just maybe got us there. I would definitely credit him with that. Would you say, Mark, like, involved now that the day of the. Would you make a big speech in addressing room now, like? I, I think those days are nearly gone into it, to be honest with you, because a lot of the work is done prior to the match. And, and like I would say, as would say, being involved in 2015 with Cork, I put too much pressure on myself as having to drive home a message maybe two or three hours before and saying to myself, like, geez, I wonder these boys listening at all. Like, you know? And I would now definitely prefer to, if there's something to be said, to choose it as Thursday night in advance. And as you say, let it be sinking in. If you're waiting for two or three hours before the throw-in on a Sunday, before a Munster Championship or an All-Ireland final, you're in some trouble. Like, because if the players are aware it, they should be 98, 99% ready, and all you're doing is just reaffirming a number of things. But ultimately, Anthony, if you're waiting for the dressing room on the day of the match to motivate for this, you're in the wrong sure. dressing room. It's too late. I, I agree with what you're saying there, Mark. Right? But if you come back to... I suppose it's different for mega rich guys in the UK and so they run big money. But to continually keep a group interested and committed and focused on the job, if you take Cody, right, you'd have to see, like, how does he match in, match out, year in, year out, keep guys who've won three, four, five, six other medals and keep them completely motivated and focused on the job. There has to be a huge skill there. It, it, TJ, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. It's unbelievable. How, how do you keep Jackie Tull and Henry Shefflin with eight All-Ireland medals and Richie Hogan and these fellas? How do you keep them motivated? I think, I think a lot of that, TJ, is down to the individuals themselves, that they are self-motivated. They want to get out there to play. They want to get out there to perform and they want to win. Cody has a path. Like, he's setting standards. He's dealing with issues as they arrive because, like, all panels of players have different sorts of issues, and now is is there's more issues now than ever in terms of social media and so like like a, a guy's private life, TJ, in my opinion, right now is nearly gone with social media. Whereas when we were playing, we, we you know we didn't have the glare of the spotlight. If you went for a couple of drinks on a Saturday night, there was no issue. But just like young players now can't even go for a drink now, and it's all over the place. Like. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he's still able to. He's, he's able to fix you said every, every, everything there and then on the spot. A huge amount of experience, and he's winning as well, which is easy. It becomes a little bit easier when you have all that success behind and, you. And plus, but, the public, TJ, in the background are walking away their magic, right? Because if you're a successful team and you're walking down the street, right, on a Sunday morning, and the fellas come here, best luck in the match, they know, like you know, or 
you you played the match on the Sunday and, and, and you're meeting them and they're working to you a great win and so, like all that kind of stuff feeds into a player's psyche. Jeez, I'm actually being recognised for this thing, like and fellas know, you know, and there's nothing like a pat in the back from from supporters as well, you know, to actually keep your motivation up. Was yeah, it just just see what just stick with that team for a sec now because this fascinates me, right? Because I, I mentioned Phil Jackson as manager of the Bulls and, and what he had to deal with. Now, obviously, there'd be a massive franchise, but there'd be a small enough squad like basketball, five can play at any time. And, you know, you wouldn't be dealing with like, did Cody start to have an embarrassment of riches as well, though, that there was no one kind of indispensable? Do you know, if Jackie was getting ahead of his station, no one be great friends with Jackie, that wouldn't happen. He'd be grounded, lad, but. If he was, just say we take Jackie as an example, or Henry, or whoever, uh, Eddie, whoever, they have all the eight and nine medals, Tommy. Um, but they were dispensable, though. That he was, he was, if anyone got ahead of themselves, there was, a, there was a stage where you knew he would throw you over onto the B team in training, and if you still didn't get the message or you sulked, you therefore didn't get your place in the Leinster semi-final. No, probably the old system suited him a bit, you know. And I'm not trying to take away from Cody at all now, don't get me wrong. I saw the genius of Cody first hand in 13 when Dublin finally beat him in a replay, like, and they didn't lose the replays. And, like, for us, the boys were going balubas. But we, the Leinster final against Galway, like, who had almost won the 12 of All Ireland uh, in eight days later, like, and Galway had come through the handy side of the draw, we'll say, at the time with Leash and Offaly. And, uh, like, I was saying to myself, I was in a panic attack. Although we'd had the greatest victory I'd ever had, I suppose, as a manager, the boys were gone bananas. I said, we've no chance of getting them back down. Next thing, this big yoke came in the door with Ned Quinn in. Oh, lads. And, like, he'd only ever been in to sympathise with us before. Like, And all of a sudden, we had him inside. And, like, he straight away said how embarrassed they were as a county for letting the Bob O'Keefe Cup out of Leinster the previous year. To Galway, obviously, who'd gone into Leinster, to give people that background, and Galway had won the Leinster Championship and they brought it across to Shannon. How embarrassed he was and they were. And it was now the Dublin players' job to get that Bob O'Keefe back into Leinster where it belonged. And lads, I hadn't opened my mouth. I said, lads, if I have to say anything more after this on see on Monday night, I said, there's yeah, something but- wrong with us. But as, as, as just to make the earlier point you made there, right, is how significant were the early warning shots and threats that he fired? Like, obviously, with Charlie Carter and a few others, right? How much of a message did that send to the future years and the future players of his career that they knew, like, this guy, like, I was told a lot long time before, don't make a threat unless you're prepared to carry it out. So, but he, he carried those out and it must have had a significant impact. Because if, if I went in there as a player and I knew this guy was prepared to get rid of a Charlie Carter or whoever else, I, I can't even remember the names, the else he got rid of, he would have to have a bearing. Yeah. And I'd say, I teach it all, like even for all the great managers, right? And we'll go back to Jackson in a minute because I, we just want to talk about their whole Rodman thing, you know, and yeah. <laughs> trying to deal with him. Like. But in the way he dealt with it, like, but look, every, every team is a Rodman. Oh, yeah, you need a Rodman. Like, do you need him two days before heading for Vegas before the <laughs> world title? Like, you know, that could be interesting. I, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Uh, but like, I think a watershed for Cody, although he had won All Ireland now since he came in, obviously, he lost the first one uh, to Cork, and, and then he had won 2000, 202, 
um, two or three. And then in, in Cork kind of took over. But if you remember the massive shootout game in 205 with Galway, do you remember that? Cork yeah. came back and, and beat Clare. I was managing Clare. We were, we were leading yeah. 15 <clears throat> points to fucking yeah. 10 or something like that. Yeah, 11, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and, and Cork came back and beat us 16-15. Heartbreak for me. But then I went up to watch the other semi-final as a bit of therapy, like saying to myself that Arrow, we'd have had to play out of our skin to beat Kilkenny anyway. And do you remember, I think Niall Healy got 3-2, did he? And it was some mad score, like five-something yeah. to six-something. And for me, that was nearly a watershed for Cody, like this. This is going to be ruthless from now on. We are not getting involved in, in these shootouts. We'll be doing the shooting outs, but we won't be giving it away. At the, defensively, I thought that I, I saw a massive change in Kilkenny after that match. And obviously, we can all point to the stats and how they won four in a row after that match. But no doubt about it, there was a steel edge to their defending after that that was nearly a polar opposite to what we saw that day in 2005. Yeah, but Anthony, there's a great, um, there's a great twenty-minute um, video on YouTube about Brian Cody when he was asked about defending, and he was way, that's twenty-five years old now, like you know, and it was just so simple and so basic, like he just continued to say, "Stop the ball, stop the ball, stop the ball," and he more or less said at the very end, like you know, that he wasn't interested in wingbacks scoring points. Offense. He said, if I do wing back to have a scoring point, he said he should be playing in the forwards. But he also made the point that if they couldn't stop the ball in the backs, they shouldn't be playing as a defender. So, like, I was involved with UCC and John Tennyson and Kenneth Hickey were there from Kilkenny. Donica Cody was there. And John Tennyson said to me, Mac, he said, I'm not starting past the 45 yard line, he said. Yeah. I said, why, John? I said, sure, you have to go, man. No, no, I said. The two midfielders outside there are in the centre forward, he said. So you get the two midfielders back in front of me. I'll keep the six backs, he said, within the 45-metre line. And that was it. And to me, that was the simplest message I ever saw. And that, to me, Kilkenny have been doing that for, for years, that they are cramming the 45-yard line and backwards, and they have two midfielders then, like Michael Fenn, the engine. You know, um, I can't think of the, the Conor Fogarty, the other engine there currently. For, like, or Dirty Kling, Dirty Kling yeah, before. Up and down and up and up. But their six backs never went outside the 45 the other thing I would say about Brian Cody, Anthony, what, I, what I've seen down through the years about keeping players motivated, I felt that lads were getting older and coming to the end of their careers. He had left them off the panels maybe a year before their sell-by date, rather than like we, when we're all getting to the end, we get a bit cranky, there's no point in saying otherwise, because you're in and out of the team, you're worried whether you're going to be playing on Sunday or not playing on Sunday. Brian Cody didn't entertain that kind of age, in my opinion. That the Peter Barrys, the Tommy Welch, you know, um, Charlie was slightly different, but that he set a tone there and that. But in the later years, I felt that he never left an older player linger on too long. And the other thing is that, and this is the psychology we're keeping for this playing, Henry in his last year was a sober, and remember him coming on with 15 or 20 minutes to go in an Ireland final. He would openly admit like, that he didn't know whether he was going to be playing, or, and he had and Cody had him at his fingertips, you know, whether he wanted to play or not play. So, like, whatever, whatever magic he has, he had a fellow with nine all Ireland medals in his pocket at that stage, biting at the champ to get into the team. Like, yeah, but I, th- I think he actually brought him on a couple of minutes ago. Yeah. But Taylor, he, 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 here, here's a significant question, right? If you take 
where Henry Shefflin started out, right? And I think he, it's well documented. He wasn't like, the most gifted hurler starting out, right? Or let's say a TJ Reid where he is right now, right? How much of that was for them to get to one of the greatest players of all time? Was it Cody driving him? Was it themselves? Like, how did they become what they be? Like, it was just phenomenal, right? Like, he made them the greatest player, or did they just basically, did that kind of come about within the setup? Like, it, it, it's unusual there's two of them, like, created in, in Coley's time now to be potentially the greatest player. Like, if you look at Messi and Ronaldo, right? They, like, Ronaldo's documentary is very much on the psychology of what's driving him and the hunger was the fact that Messi was kept raising the bar, raising the bar, raising the bar, that he basically had to keep going and like he was driven to that. Like he's just trying to understand the psychology around Sheffield and TJ Reid as how did they become just ultra superior? Yeah, it's it. But I think, look, I mean, you have to be lucky as well in one way that the bunch of people come together at the right time. Like, I mean, I'd say like if I was four or five years older, which then 95, I'd probably have given it up at this stage because it was just constant. I mean, the club was always a source of hope for you uh, because we were contenders nearly every year. But if Claire, if I had started, I, I mean, to fairness to the Sparrow, to be still there, and he was, he was 28 because the torture he had put up with, like, like not alone the hammerings from yourselves in, 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 in 94 and Tip in 93, but like Sparrow had endured being on a team that was... He was a sub in 86. He was on the extended panel that had been beaten agonizingly by Cork in Killarney. He put up a great display. Then they got to the league final, 97. Uh, missed the late goal. Then they drew a tip. Then they got annihilated by tip in the replay. And things went just totally downhill. Like, that's for me, like, is it, can he even know, like, he's doing a magnificent... In some ways, now is he doing a better job, lads, by having them in last year's All-Ireland final winning the league final two years ago than what he won with that bunch of players that he had. He is getting the maximum out of him and I describe it a little bit like, you know, when you'd peel an orange in two and you'd grate it and you get the orange out of it and next time you pick up the pieces after and say, geez, I'll get another bit out of this, like, you know, because he's getting a massive amount, a savage tune out of the current players, you know, and like, you definitely had six or seven all-time Delaney, Tommy Welch, Michael Fenley, Henry Sheffin, Owen Larkin, Richie Hogan. I think they were all hurlers of the year. And they were all together at the one time. There's only one hurler. I think TJ is the only hurler. Is he hurler of the year? Um, he has been. And like, he has been, yeah. It's phenomenal what he's getting out of him. And like, the, Anthony, the year they won the league, they were beaten, I think, in the first two or three matches. favourites for the relegations. And then they turned around and they won the league afterwards. It's been... like. There's no other manager or county at the moment can do what they have done. And like to get them to the Ireland final, we, we'll never know the true reflection of the score last year after Richie Hall gets sent off because Tipperary was starting to come into the game. But John, um, what's it, the Tipperary on a forward went back and he, 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 he hooked Colin Fenley and would have put Kilkenny 11 or 12 points clear after about 15 or 20. Like It was an unbelievable start to the game now. How it finished up after the first 20 minutes was incredible. Uh, that's what had beaten kind of Limerick and and uh, Cork before that. That's right. Was the starts they got after TJ? The, like the, the work rate performance that he got out of them for the Limerick game, certainly in the first half, I have never seen it live and so close to the action. So whatever he said to them, whatever he did, and that's back to what you're saying about the motivation. Like, does Cody have a psychologist, or is he the psychologist? 
Oh, he's the psychologist, I believe. But I mean, they wouldn't have been. There'd be great relationship there between himself and Mickey Hart now, as far as I know. And both of them would have would have spoken to their respective panels. You know, I suppose when Hart, his Hart did some job in fairness, whether yes, whether it's getting to the stage now where he should move on is another day's work. But I mean, to build three different teams to win in All Ireland from a county that had never won it is an incredible job of work. But I think they had a great working relationship. But I don't think there was any massive. Um, outside sports psychologists brought in like you know I don't, I don't think that was part of the plan well I do know now whether it's folklore or not I don't know but I, I remember Ned Quinn um, is quoted as saying that you know he offered Brian Cody a statsman and he said Ned today I'll need a statsman he said you will have my resignation so he was basically saying I can read the game I don't need a statsman to tell me who's going when who's going bad and I, maybe, maybe I'm old school, but I, I I like that train of thought, like you know. I know. I believe I believe that has changed, though, Mark. Like just a significant, and, significant, and, and significant. I would agree with you because you know when you see short puckouts going right, and like I also would recognise that when he was turning around to be selected maybe three or four years ago and asking them their opinions of what and changes, and you never see Brian Cody consulting with any uh, management prior to four years ago. I'd say prior to that. He was on his own out in the sideline and he was an audience and he'd just go back to the selectors and say, look, this is what's happening. Like, but there was a lot and more consultation on the sideline the last year, four years. And in the semi-final last year against Limerick, they look at the position of Walter Walsh and John Donnelly for the Limerick puckouts early on. Like, there was a significant amount of homework and stats and facts gone into that. Like, so I, I don't buy into that. And when I was in, when they beat us in 2014, I was in the dressing room, from what I could see in the dressing room, they had as much stats and facts as any team that I've ever seen. So, I, I, I do think. But he has moved at the times and in fairness yeah. to him, he is able to continually do uh, an unbelievable... They set the bar really, really high for everybody else. Day in, day out, they, they, they have a serious consistency. I know, I know they didn't win the All-Ireland last year, but it was fair going. as just said, equally, probably as good as anything he's done previously to get into the All-Ireland final. Uh, TJ, you were, you were massive in 14. Like, you... You were desperately unlucky, like, you know, who's to say if it was a dry day, you would have ran him off the field, or did the, did the wet day help you? Some might say as well, you don't know. But you obviously performed to a huge level, like massive against Wexford in the quarter and put up a massive... Like, did you do anything that you can look back on and say that was hugely significant in the, what you got out of the players in that year? Uh, me, personally, no. <laughs> I can't take any credit for it. Do you know anything that I did... In 2014, for a couple of games, we got the services of a guy called Ian Costello, right? Now, Ian was in the backroom team in the Munster. He was defence coach with the Munster rugby team, right? In a professional setup, a Limerick man. He knew some of the boys locally. And for us, he was a huge factor, right? Um, brilliant insight into stats and facts and game day preparation. Came in and spoke to us about people like Paul O'Connell and like little nuggets he gave to the lads about like on game week. That basically, literally, if you were down your hunkers, your hands, your hips, right, the Paul O'Connell would literally just lift you off it, right? And that he, around, once in game we came in, and Ian was significant. He got to our players. He was able to get a drive out of us. It, de- it definitely helped us in those games. Now, we, we, we lost the Munster final, possibly should have won it, but the first day in Turles is a long time since LMA team had beaten Tip and Turles. But he had a massive, massive influence on the psychology, on our thinking. 
like things like the blue head and he just he just basically got inside our players' heads and I thought it was What's the blue head now? Come on, you can't just say blue head and not tell us. <laughs> no, but like, like I'm saying what we would have said for a player is basically is when, when the head is blue, your thinking is clear, you're in the zone, basically. As you can imagine, Dale, I'd imagine when your head went to red there once or twice, right? When basically <laughs> all when when all thinking goes out the window, a bit like the boxer hitting you in the bridge of the nose, right? But it's very hard to think clear. So he spoke about things like Munster Rugby, about staying in the zone, um, basically going back to the basics, going back to your training. And for us, uh, whilst Ian might have been an out psychologist, his simplicity and his just simplifying of the game and bringing it down to things like just a blue head on the day, it, it, it definitely was a significant contributing factor for us and our performances. TJ, a question. You go back now to Michael Jordan and go back to, we'll say... Ruby Walsh or Tony McKay, um, Ron Nagara, right? Okay. What the best players, in your opinion, now? Did they always have the clear thinking anyway? Did they need a psychologist to come in and mark out, you know, the blue, the blue head or whatever to a clear, clear head? I think the best players were always able to manage that teacher. Yeah, true, right? But during, I just think my own playing days, right? And and even some guys like you go to watch a player and sometimes there's an inconsistency there or that today they're like really, really on their game, they're buzzed up and then maybe next week they're not as good. Like I do think that the psychology is very important about bringing about consistency. Like if a player trains his socks off, everything is kind of on the money, right? All week, all month, all year, right? The psychologists are kind of saying, well, why, there is no absolute reason as to why you can't bring your A game on Sunday, right? And they're trying to get rid of that little, whether it's a bit of baggage or whatever factor is holding anybody back and just basically simplifying it. And they're able to get the best out of everybody all the time. And they're definitely able to get the best out of the key players when their best is required. Right. But I, I suppose, and I, 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 and I, I, I'm, Looking at a bracket of players in every inter-county setup or every club team, right? You have your one or two real key individuals in every team. Then you have um, a level of player that's a very, very good inter-county player or club. And then you have a bottom portion here. And I always think those lads need a lot of work, right? But the top one or two, you go back to the Brian Cochran, right? Or go back to the Kieran Carey, maybe, or the Brian Lohan. Did they need a psychologist or are the Michael Jordans, right? Are the best, and I'm, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm, I'm differentiating now the best fellas. And I'm not saying about the ordinary fellas. We are, I'm not disrespecting any player, right? I'm just saying the best fellas, in my opinion, were always self-motivated. They always had a clear thinking. They always knew exactly what was required to win on any given day. And you will have the best fellas that will have an off day. Like you go back to the Chetnam this year, Paul Townsend was criticised for the right he gave. Benny Didui a hot pot. Was a certain it was out. He made a mistake. And then he comes out and he rides album photo to win the Gold Cup in a magnificent ride. Same individual. I'm just saying. So I hope I haven't gone off the point there. but No, you yeah. haven't, Mark. No, we, I, I get exactly where you are, right? The best fellas there, though. But I would say that that they were possibly your sports psychologists within the group. Within well, the group. If you know what I'm saying. What I what I'll refer back to there now, we can only refer to what we know, I suppose, but fellas like Shawnee McMahon would say very little in training all year, right? 
but he would set the example by the way he trained. And McMahon could come off and back in with a nice little arse in him now, probably not as bad as me or Dyler, but he he come back like with a fair bit of condition maybe, right? But would then absolutely sacrifice himself totally. But then the week of the game, like he might, and this was, and I got him to talk to the dubs before the 13 All-Ireland semi-final, I think where we did perform really well. We came down to Clare in a training camp and I got Shawnee in to talk to him. Some of the younger lads wouldn't have known Shawnee as such, you know, but a lot of the older guys, the Keenies, the Ryan O'Dwyer, the Dotsies, they kind of idolised him as a fella who came across as the gent, the real nice fella. But Shawnee's regular one was like, lads, he might say around March, we're, we're playing Limerick or we're playing Cork on the 15th of June in the Munster semi-final. You better be getting up to shave yourself that morning or wash your face or wash your teeth and look in that mirror and say, I've the work done. Mm. And then all you can do is let it go. Now, for me, that was psychology. And that's what the psychologist would tell you, was to be, to be present, you know. And, and, and I suppose that was one of the things that they said about the greatest gift that Michael Jordan has, what he's, most people struggle to be, is, is present. You know, he could live. And that's, for me, why Shawnee turned in so many massive games. He always was never too excited, never down the dumps if he missed two 65s in a row. There was that continuous flow, like. And, and I, for me, I'm not saying he was Michael Jordan, but it was death. Do you know that he wouldn't worry about a missed shot or a miss free because he hadn't missed that free yet. He might have missed the two previous ones, but when he was stepping up to that third one, he hadn't missed so for me, that sort of psychology, low and be similar, would have rubbed off on an awful lot of the rest of us. Yeah, but Dello, I think what you're saying is definitely true in terms of a lot of individuals are different, right? But if you take a lot of the top sports stars in the world, right, an awful lot of them use sports psychology. Like Paula Connell references Caroline Curran as having a huge influence in getting him to perform at the top level. So there, like, there's no doubt, I think, used properly whether it be within a group or within an individual. Like you take Caroline Corridge with Limerick, lads credit her with bringing significant mind change. You talk about the semi final, Mark, when Limerick beat Cork when they were five points down and looked oh, like the game, was, yeah. go, the game was going away from them. I, yeah. I, I would definitely say that the psychology of just the lads' head being in the right place and someone kind of saying you play all the way to the end, like that definitely was a contributing factor to getting Limerick over the line. So, it's different horses, of course. I remember like, early on, like, some of the managers brought in the psychologist and it was after training and they were flat and you have to have a quick bite to eat and you were, try- <laughs> you were trying to get home there. Get home because you'd be- <laughs> load of bollocks, like, load of bollocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, you were out all day and all night and you'd listen to somebody for an hour ranting on and all of like, you know what I said? You probably, they probably had a room for 10 minutes and after that, fellas. That didn't work. But I, I, I definitely would have no doubt in, in, in the modern era, right, that, there is definitely some guys whose mind might mean the right place and sports psychology. I spoke very, very briefly to Saturday. There's a program on Netflix at the moment about the mind of Aaron Hernandez, right? An American footballer, unbelievable player with the Patriots, right? Three programs on Netflix. I, like, this is a perfect example against the Michael Jordan where, Jordan, where this guy's head wasn't in the right place, influenced by the wrong people, and he just went wrong. So, like, there's definitely room for this here. Like, how it's used, how it's used by individuals or teams going forward, um, is going to be a contributing factor. I found the most effective year of a teacher. You know, I did nine years, and I had Liam Morgan, I had Declan Kyle, 
I was blessed to have the great Gary Keegan now. Like yeah. Keegan's with the Dublin footballers and the Tipperary hurlers last year. That's fair going now. And, and Caroline has some record as well, two All-Ireland hurlings, two, like, they have, like Keegan set up the medals for us in the Olympic boxing. Like he created the high performance unit and would have worked to Cork maybe a couple yeah. of years ago. I don't, know, right. I don't know why he was dispensed to it off from under that. But um, like for me, what we had in that year is I brought Tony Griffin, who was living in Dublin, working in Dublin, had finished playing club hurling. I brought Griffin in full time as, no, Griffin had no title really. You could call him a life coach, right? But I brought him in. He used to train with the lads. He did the winter running because that would be Griff. He'd be always in savage shape. He, he went swimming with him in the sea after the sessions. But the big thing Griff was there for was he was there if anyone was troubled by stuff. To say, and we, you know the way you'd notice lads, right? Yeah. This lads, the head is down a bit. Yeah. And Griff had noticed it himself. And like, he'd meet him for the bit of breakfast. He'd meet him for the cup of coffee you know, four o'clock before training or an hour before training, point to what, or just anything on your mind, John, yeah. Billy, Connor, Finbar, <clears throat> whoever. And, and then we had Keegan, and Keegan only spoke to the players once. As you said, TJ, for me, that day is gone. This guy in to just talk, and, oh, God, I've been asked to do this so many times, lads. And fellas looking up at me saying, what the, how did this fella win anything? And you're there, you know this is going shit. And you're getting, <laughs> get me out of this room. Yeah, These, yeah. I know there's the odd time. I mean, I spoke to the Mayo players before 17. And I have never met a more locked on bunch of guys. And how they didn't win that final. And you know, one guy in the room wasn't so locked on. And unfortunately for him, it didn't, and I'm not saying that that's ex- just me talking. But Jesus, lads, they were intimidating. Like Andy Moran pulled his stool up in front of me, TJ. It was, they were in Limerick on a training weekend. And Donny Buckley was involved. And Donny asked me what I talked to him. Next thing, Andy caught his stool. And I said, Jesus, Andy walking out already. Like, you know. And Andy pulled the stool up in front of me. I said, Andy, if I wasn't intimidated coming in, by Jesus, I am now. But lads, where I go back to then with Gary Keegan was in 13. What we used to do is we used to have regular, you know, there weren't Zoom calls, but there were these, you know, meetings you can have over the phone. Richie Stakelin used to set him up for us, but we'd have Gary on doors and we'd meet Gary ourselves, the management. And like, he took me apart so many nights. Like, I mean, when we drew with Kilkenny, we'd one of those, let's call him a phone, what do you call him? A conference call, sorry. True. And he, yeah. like, he says to me, what's your feeling, Dalo? He threw it out there. He was kind of chairing it in his own way. And I says, Jesus, I came back to Clare last night, uh, Gary, and I went in for a pint in my local there, but Claire after losing the cork, so everyone was down the dumb stairs as well. And I was a bit down as well, and everyone was kind of saying to me, pity, pity, you know, and that was the word that was ringing in my ear. And he said, you may as well stay at home and Claire tomorrow night, he said. If you don't get your house in order and your head in order tomorrow night, you might as well not go to Port Leash next Saturday night, he said, because they'll feed off you. And like I, I literally hit for Kiki, jumped in the sea, walked the cliff walk twice, and talk to myself, and I was never as ready for the Tuesday night because of Gary. And right. then I had, I had Griffin feeding into this thing on a one-on-one. And for me, that was the most effect I ever got out of this sort of psychology. And I think that, that is what their key role today is, right? Is they come in, and the first thing they try to do is understand the values and the process of what you're trying to do, right? To get inside everybody, to find out what you want here, how are you going to plan this process? How are we going to measure this? What standard are we setting here? And there are the changes. Like if you take somebody today that wants to lose weight, right? You have to make 
significant changes. It's not somebody coming in and telling you, okay, you're going to lose weight and then everything falls into place, right? No, do you know what I mean? So the, you, you have to plan it. You have to make the lifestyle changes. And then you have to feed into like honest communication. And then you have to feed into the factors and what exactly goal are you looking for here? And, and, and they're able to create this. But TJ, does the old system not work like um, shove out in the field and shove back to the table? <laughs> it, it, it does. It, and and there, that's the key goal of what you're trying to do. But in order to get somebody to do that on a regular basis, something in their lifestyle has to change. And they're able to point this out to you. And it might be a life coach coming into a business to basically tell you about three or four very simple things. You plan the process, you measure it, you set the standards, and then you communicate all the way through. And, and then it starts to fall into place and it becomes very real. Yeah. And like, just Mark, you, ra- you, you, you raised the thing about the whole social media thing and the, yeah. you know, the life now, right? And what's a very interesting one is your man now, lads, I don't watch it. It was on last night there, no normal people, but I don't watch it onto the RTE plus one. Because I couldn't cope with watching it with the daughters, to tell you the truth. Like the amount of the amount of stuff that's going on there, I wouldn't be able to handle that to be sitting in the sitting room watching this. So but your man seemingly whatever he what's his name again? Um he's cunnel in the programme, but he was a three year yeah, yeah, right. he was a three he was a three year Kildare minor like. And they showed him playing for the school. Paul Meskel, Paul Meskel is his name. Thanks, Larry, with the old message there, why you can't fail the technology. But anyway, look. This guy was a three-year Kildare minor, but Acton obviously took over, and he's, he's this heartthrob now. He's made like, but he did a podcast recently, and you see, he suffers a lot. Last night's episode, one of his friends committed suicide, right? And he's in bits, like, the lad is as low that you're worried nearly last night that he's in that zone as well. And he did a podcast uh, lately. I don't know who he did it with now exactly. It could be Mully or one of them. I don't know who he, who he did it with, but he said the amount of inter-county and club players that have contacted him through his social media page and said what he portrayed. Now, he didn't write the script, as he said himself, but the way he acted it out, how much it meant to them. And I said, Jesus, lads, we're living in, in funny times. Like, I know we are anywhere with COVID-19, but Jesus, yeah. when you think about that, that a, a TV drama yeah. could mean that much to ordinary guys at club and county level. That's, that's, I'm shocked. I'm, I'm totally shocked with it. And, you know, it just proves again, like, that you've got to be very careful with what you're saying in a dressing room or, or at a training session. That, <clears throat> and you, you mentioned a thing there, Anthony, earlier on about you'd recognise a fellow if he was a bit down and the head was down. I'd always be a big believer in that. You, you could see it coming a mile away if you're at a training session or inside the dressing room with the way some players will act. You'll see something that's totally out of character. You say, Jesus, there's something on his mind all right now. I might have even, him. even if it's boisterous, Mark, like even if it's yeah. all it's, jolly. It's, it's, it's totally opposite to what you expect because when, when you know fellas on a regular basis, you have a fair feel for their personality. And if something out of the ordinary happens, like there's something biting him now, there's something, some ache or a pain somewhere, you know? I think that, that that's what the psychologists are very good at doing. You know, I probably wouldn't have been brilliant at noticing some of that. Like, I was nearly one of those guys that was just so consumed that just wanted to win more than I wanted to breathe and my heart was pumping outside my chest that some of that stuff definitely got by. And I think that that definitely happens to a lot of us. They're just so consumed in the dressing room, in the moment, in the game, that we miss some of us. Yeah. But going back, going back to Jordan, um, Dela, and, and you mentioned one of his teammates, Dennis Radman. Okay, now, like, 
you know, in the middle of the series where they were going for a grand final, like, and this fella says to, to Phil Jackson, like, he said, I need a couple of days away, like. But where Dennis heads for his Vegas on a flight, a private jet, and yeah. he appears on WrestleMania the following night with, with Hulk Hogan. Hogan. <laughs> yeah, and like, your man, Phil Jackson is interviewed in at, at training, like at, at practice or whatever they call it over there. And he said, uh, where's, where's Dennis? Like, he said, uh, we don't know. And is he, is he excused in training? He's not. Yeah. And like, he went out and was man of the match. And, and, and it's very much played out in the media. We mentioned earlier on about, you know, look, Lachnan would have left the video camera into the dressing room. I must say, the, the access to the dressing rooms and uh, the footage that, was, that we could see from this, um, this, this documentary, I thought it was brilliant. Like, I thought the access to the players was phenomenal. But the smoking, the cigars inside the dressing room before the game. Like, I now, you played with Stephen Taylor, and, and I'd say Johnny Pilkington might be a good player now to have a fag in the dressing room before a game. Like, but I just, I, the size of the cigars, and they were so relaxed. And like, the whole speech then was... Just before the world, what time is it? It's game time. Game time. And that was it, like. Now, probably it's because of the amount of matches that they're going to play in the whole series, and they're probably 100 or 120 to get to the final, like, but, and you couldn't have a speech every night. Dale, could you ring Cody there, or um, Brian Lohan, or John Kiley, and ask him there for your research, right, for the upcoming championship, if there is a knockout one there, right, that you could just follow them around and just get a feel for what's going on in training <laughs> and some of the speeches and stuff. I mean, it'd be a great view in there and you could kind of do an old documentary just to kind of really get a proper insight as to real full inter-county scene today and talk to the psychologists. I think, I think they'll allow you in. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say I know what law and it's say anyway and, and you can only imagine what the other two would say. But look, I'll tell you, Tid, you know, I've, I've some amount of video footage from the dubs because our video analysis, Denise Martin, would be, she'd be filming everything and you wouldn't even notice her doing it. She'd be filming dressing rooms beforehand. Like, she had, she even caught me the time in before the league final. I thought there was desperate tension before the match, and instead of going roaring and shouting and relax with you, it's only a hurling game. You know the new dressing rooms in Croker, like obviously under the Hogan, they're absolute. Like, there's a management dressing room, there's the warm up area, there's the players that are just unreal. Like, for anyone who hasn't been down there, we've been privileged enough to be down there. But um, I actually went in and put on a swimming hat, a pair of goggles, and the old speedo tight swimming trunks TJ and walked into the dressing room and there was lads on foam rollers now and everything and, and I said in my best limerick TJ right because Massey O'Brien was there former club mate he was just where's the pole as if we were in a top class hotel and like I remember Colonel Keeney saying to me that night if we'd lost that match he says I was going to pull out of that penalty he says because he was only after coming back from the football in 11 right and he says, that's the greatest stunt I ever saw in my whole life. He says, I says, can you imagine Cody doing it, Connell? I says, team. And the two of us had two pints like, in front of us after winning the league the first time in 72 years. And uh, we, we, were, we had six or seven weeks to the championship or whatever. We were having a beer and enjoying each other's company. And I hadn't really had a beer with him up to that, obviously. And he said, I never saw a stunt like that in my whole life. He says, I, I tell you what. And I says, well, I didn't really either. But I just said something had to break the ice. And like you couldn't do it twice, like no. Dello, here I have, I have a question for you on modern day psychology, right? and you're still involved with teams in about twenty ones in Castle. You're a well prepared team, right? Everything is going according to plan. The week has gone well. You're playing for a county semi final, county final, right? First half, everything's out the window. Disastrous performance. No one's playing well. You're bull tick. You're heading for the dressing room at half time. Are you take the paint off the walls? Are you let's 
kind of find out what's going wrong here. I need to talk to my statistician. I need to find out what's going wrong. Or are you kind of saying, fuck that. I, I get to these guys here now. <laughs> well, look, TJ, it, it's a bit like, and he has evolved as well, obviously, like Brian Cody. It's a bit like Davy Fitz at halftime. I'm just going in and I'm going to say, puck it up to Joe. <laughs> like what a moment like the snaky fellow of a sob anyway that was inside filming him on his phone like but I mean you think about that lads I've got about Davy and tactics and moving guys and evolving sweepers and we all heard it like and I don't know it was in the infancy of his coaching career like and he probably still in goal for clear at the time he definitely was actually and uh puck it up to Joe puck it up to Joe says Fitzy like and you know what if you had a freaking Joe you'll be inclined to say, like, if you had an Owen Kelly, puck it up to Owen, puck it up to Joe, like, or whatever, you know, if you had a guy like that. But TJ, yeah, I was going to talk a bit about that because for me, like, lads, at halftime, if things are going bad, I think you can make it worse, TJ. You can? God, like, no, you I, can. I, I you actually can. think, I, I, have, I have witnessed myself making it worse by going in and cutting down fellas and cutting down everything and asking them, questioning their manhood and, what are we doing training since last November? I, I actually think you can make it worse. I always know, like, well, I, I'm, I'm obviously not as involved now, but just we didn't get to play with the 21s, obviously. Hopefully we might at some stage. But like, I, the last few years, certainly, I wouldn't go into the dressing room for the first two or three minutes. I'd let one, a good kit man who has their ear. I'd great yeah. guy in Dublin, Ray Finn. Jesus, lads. Ray Finn was yeah. all their, their pal. You know, they loved him and he was so good to them. And Ray would go in and have a chat. Jeez, lads, come on, we're better than this. And come on, you're great guys. I've seen the way you've trained long before they'll all come in now and you might say something. And I've taken that time to calm myself as well, TJ, you know, because yeah. we, we, we're so frustrated on the line. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one, one very good story. I, I remember being in a club dressing room um, and we did a shocking performance. It was actually the end of the game. And afterwards, the manager, the temporary man, he came in, right? So he decided to take the paint off the walls, brought us all down to earth, told us all we were useless to sit. The other roared and screamed for about four or five minutes, right? So he had a hurl in his hand and there was a table in the middle of the floor, right? So he banged the table and basically it ends this kind of conversation with, has anyone got anything to say, right? So there was silence for about three or four seconds, right? So then one of the guys in the corner gets up, right, walks over to him and takes the hurl and says, hi, that's my good hurley. <laughs> <laughs> so that like, just took the sting completely oh, out of it. Oh but you need, you need yeah. that as well, TJ. But uh, Ark, like, what about, yeah. 19, what about no, 1990, McCall? Okay, oh, jeez, yeah, 1990. And we saw it recently against Galway. Sure, Galway absolutely cleaned out Cork in the first half. The game should have been over at halftime. And I remember... Miles has a great story about Kevin Hennessy that Kenan O'Brien who was in charge of the team was deciding the dressing room lads, and he says lads he said lads this is absolutely shocking he said there's only three of you playing extremely well at the moment the other 12 of you are useless he said and Kevin Hennessy stopped him in midfield and he said to the Kenan he said Kenan do you mind me asking who are the other two <laughs> <laughs> This is, this is half time in the All Ireland final. In the All Ireland final, he said, and oh. said the, the whole place broke down. But that was the camaraderie that panel of players actually had at the time. But going back to dressing rooms at half time, I remember in 2001 with Killer, we, we were playing Mallow in the intermediate uh, final. And it was a re. And um, I was having a particularly bad game now. Philip Tiger Rion was knocking his four points score from play. We, we always called him 30 minute Tiger after he won't mind me saying it because he got some slagging. <laughs> Because there was a fellow by the name of Dick Welsh, and he was playing wing back beside me, and I would have known for my 
all my playing careers. You're not one of these young players that you come up with since yeah. you're seven or eight years of age, taking scalps out of each other down the field. But we came into the dressing room at halftime and we weren't playing particularly well and Mallow were winning handy and I was getting a roasting. But um, Dick never says anything in the dressing room. Never. He never spoke in his life in the dressing room. And we were in Parky Cueve in the small dressing room and the selectors were outside the LIU and TG, you know there were two dressing rooms, the selectors were in one. So next one and Dick Oak opened up like about, you know, what today meant and you know, one of our great leaders getting a cleaning out and it's up to us now, lads, to row in behind him, right? And and basically get out and do the business in the second half. But as he was speaking, the selectors came in and Dick had the, had the audience, he had the players, right? And the players were on their feet and we were only about four minutes or five minutes in the dressing room at this stage. And when Dick finished, the manager says, right, that's it, lads, away you go. He was able to judge the mood of the dressing room that he couldn't add any more. We went out, obviously, and fairy tale story, blah, blah, blah. But it was the manager realizing that what, what Richard had said inside the dressing room was enough for the players, and he'd hit the point that he needed to make. Brilliant. I think, like, Liam Griffin has often, you know, spoke about Johnny Flood as well, like when he's out injured in 96. TJ, I'm not paying for yeah, one few, but you know, that Johnny yeah. had the last word, and Griffin knew enough. But like, I even, and he won't mind me telling a couple of quickies, or like, everyone, everyone often asked me, why were you laughing in the huddle in 95, just at the start of the national anthem, just as it was about to start, like the Artane boys were giving it, you know, and uh, like, I had gone up for the toss, obviously, and you know, you know, all the pageantry beforehand, you're meeting the president, everything else, and you get lost a bit in yourself, and if you're not prepared, obviously, you're not ready, but anyway, somewhere in the huddle, I was around the middle of the huddle, and when Offaly had gone to their positions in front of us, defending the hill, and Fergie Tui was behind me, and I, but I know his voice, like that now, Mark grew up with him, you know, I knew, yeah. sure, we were best of buddies, like, drinking pals and everything else, pals, and uh, next thing, Dale, how are we playing? And I says, uh, well, that's Brian Whelan over there, Fergie, on our left. And I said, that's Hubert Rigney in front of us. And you're Mark and Kevin Martin over there. I said, <laughs> like, <laughs> everyone. I remember PJ O'Connell, who used to have a desperate, distinctive laugh, like a big, husky, deep laugh, like, ooh, 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 we burst in. Like, <laughs> and oh, a lot of us started laughing. Like, and, and as Fergie said, it did as much for him nearly, you know, to break the ice. Yeah. Like, everyone laughed at him. Like, it's not going to get much worse here. Like, if we lose this, this is going to be toiled against me for the next 20 years, maybe. But Tui goes out and scores four points and play in a 1-13 scoreline. Like, you know, you know, but another classic, lads, we had about halftime. Kerry beat us in our first match after that All-Ireland, right? In the league. Remember the couple of rounds in the league for Christmas? Yeah. And we were blowing Tralee, like, and, like, we had drank the shit of it. There's no point saying it any other way. Like, for two and a half months, I suppose, you know? And we're inside the dressing room. Ain't trouble at half time, though. Kerry were wired for it. And of course, typical the Kerry crowd. You know, and I wrote about him on Monday, the Kerry Harlan supporters. Oh. Why when they get up behind them, I, we won't mention the trouble. Leave it, on, out, leave it out, leave it out, leave it out. But um, uh, no, like, two, he was inside and he was complaining about the jerseys, that there were an old set of jerseys, right? And everything was only thrown together for the fucking day. He was giving out shit. He said, the schlitters we have. And what a lot of shite. And he was giving, Pat Casey was probably giving a hand with the kid, Dr. Merson even. But two, he put the jersey over his knees, right? Now, he had a bit, nice bit of trim put on around the midriff, right? But he was there stretching the jersey over his knees. And the door in Stacks Park opens up. And who comes in, like, looking at him with the jersey over his knees on, he looked there, like, oh. <laughs> we down about five points to carry. And he said, 
It's not the fucking jersey, Fergie. <laughs> the man inside him. <laughs> classic, like classic. To go back to dressing rooms, music is a, a, a significant factor in a lot of dressing rooms now to kind of maybe relax the mood or kind of get people in the zone beforehand. Do you have music in the dressing room or on the bus or those significant Al Pacino um, speeches, listening to them, getting off the bus, whatever, all, all different types of all them, yeah? Uh, yeah, not not with look, man. I have to say, no, to be kind of silenced from catching into Torles. We'd go out to, so we did things bananas like we were up out of bed at half six to go to Torles, but we'd go to bed in in the Cashel Hotel or the kind beautiful hotel in Cashel. Same with going to Dublin, we'd fly up around seven, go into bed. Ollie Baker, like that's had a Ollie Baker could tell me, shut up, turn off the television after having a big father of an Irish breakfast, turn off the television and shut up at about 10 o'clock and I'd have to wake him at quarter to 12 to go for the warm-up. Like, come on, come on. And I dare trying to pick out a lucky 15 for the day. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like fellas, just, you can't account for lads. Like, you know, that's a bit like Rodman, like, isn't it? You just, you just can't, you, like, you can't account for fellas. Like, some fellas, like, like, Dignan told me a great story. I, I don't know if you ever heard it about, about John Troy, like, and we all know how gifted John Troy was, like, and, Massive under-21 final, you'll remember, drawing a replay, Waterford and uh, Offaly. Waterford beat them in 92. Jeez, there were two brilliant games of hurling, like, you know. Like, John Trey, like, just gifted hurler, like, and just didn't need the sport. Like, he'd be anti the sport psychology, you can imagine as well, like. But, like, they drew the match anyway on, on the Saturday night, I think, and, and uh, Parry Horn was the manager, you know, great Offaly man, captain, and they made the breakthrough, and never drank or smoked, lived for Ireland, just made a big speech, huge performance. We have to go at it again now, eight days' time. Look, if you want to have a drink tonight, have a drink tonight, there's no bollocks on tomorrow. Train on Monday night and we'll do two or three hard sessions and we'll go at it again next Sunday and we'll win it. No, they ultimately lost it, but I think Troy was outstanding again the following week. And uh, I think a few lads, anyway, went for a few pints on the Sunday on the QT, as you do, but of course, word gets out and I think they went to Banagher or somewhere like that and, and uh, uh, Obviously, uh, the manager found out about it anyway, you know. So he go Horn Horn goes in anyway on Monday night, and there was a big standoff, and the players were told get back into the dressing room and went bananas. Like he said, like not alone, you got your warning. We've an All Ireland replay next weekend, and he said, fellas went around my own hometown in Banagher, drinking pints and talking shite. He said, and I want to know who they are. Now he knew who they were. There was about five of them, I think. And, they put up their hands like him. He savaged into him again anyway for another five minutes. And at the end of it anyway, he stopped and Troy said, Parik, I just want to say there, I might have had a few pints, but I wasn't talking shite. <laughs> 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 I like, you look, Horn seemingly was so dismantled. Like he said, just get out and train. And you know, look, it, it takes all sorts, doesn't it? As, as we've learned over the years. Absolutely. Uh, you know, look, and you could go on for stories of dressing rooms, I remember years ago we played Black Rock and we were in the senior champ, we were outsiders and Michael Byrne Fong, we was the calling, about six foot four, a big huge man, right? And I mean, just huge. But um, I remember just before the game, he was inside in the dressing room and he was hitting the, the holly off of the, the, the table, you know, and you know, the long linear timber tables and the two steel, steel uh, legs the side leg like, and just his parting shot was he drew a bust of a kick on the on the um on the table but he didn't realise there was a bit of box on going straight between the two legs. Reefed his shin right <laughs> open you could you could drive a bus up through the shin like just before we went out to the field like and uh, 
I like it. Just the simple thing happen in the restaurants before you go to their match. Ah, yeah, lads. We, could, we, could, we could tell yarns for the night, TJ. Dale, one of the things, just in the whole, you, you, you spoke about body language and you being in the zone on the sideline, right? How much of a factor do you think that is? Like having the manager there roaring at you. Are we looking at the possibility of an inter-county hurling manager being up in the stand? Or, like, for me personally, I would always much prefer to be down on the sideline. Now, in the last county final, I got a bit of both because I was in the sideline for the start and then I got you were put up into the stand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the referee did me, we had a kind of an understanding. He, he called me over into the middle of the field and he said, look, he said, I think you'll be better off watching the rest of this match. Up in the stand. And I agreed with him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we didn't cross swords on the sideline too often, I tell you that much. Jesus. But like, even, even Davey would say to me now that he nearly prefers watching it above and also, of course, he was forced to go up to watch it yeah. as well. And they built a special box for him. But uh, look, you'll still find with Davey that he's down at about five minutes for half time again, isn't he? But I, I honestly think, Tej, not so much the day of the game. They don't, the players don't take too much notice of you. Probably the subs are looking at you more the day of the game. Like, like, but your demeanour that week, I think, if you give off that, that steely confidence. Like, you know, we remember Paddy saying about that, that bit of steel, that bit of, you know bite that bit of you know and like he was giving that off and I think those Westmead players fed off that and I think if you carry yourself really confidently and well that week not cocky not messing but you know that they'll feed off that I think that's more important than and I, 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 do, the line. I do think Paul O'Connell was huge into body language the week of the game and the day of the game that if you got hit you didn't let anybody see that you, you might be hurt and bad inside which are body language and that's massive right yeah like I think maybe the manager on the sideline might have more influence with a referee maybe in the modern game rather than he might have with his own players and that, that can often you might get the next decision Dale. you definitely yeah. have got one or two that led to a few arguments between myself and Mr. Cody over the years. I saw that right. Minutes. I wore two shoulders and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why, why are you refing the game, Brian? Who told you you could ref? Why is he allowed ref the game? To the <laughs> <laughs> but he was, doing, he was doing what he thought he was going to do to, to win. Well, lads, look, we, we're going over time, I suppose. Larry will have a job trying to edit all this. Look at it. Fantastic. I think we've given great old insights there as we can. Probably a lot of bad ones as well to potential coaches and managers over the years. Uh, I leave you with one story from the great John Milan, the one and only John Milan. He normally features, well, obviously we know he was paid the legs off himself before the match to get ready for the battle outside, but he told a great one, we were playing him in a kind of a relegation game, Dublin and Watford down in, in Dungarvan, and geez, there was an awful lot of shite being talked, as he said himself in the dressing room, and he wasn't really one for talking in the dressing room, but they were all on about, there's no way of letting fucking Dublin down here to relegate us, and Daily as well, fucking clear bollocks. And all. You know the usual stuff now, fellas, be coming out with the dressing room, but sure, if you met him that night, they'd be all about you, and I'd be all about them. And he said straight out, but he said he was sick of it, and he just wanted to get on with it and get out. And he said, right, lads, we're ready to go. And he said he left fly at the table just to get to finish the talk and one bang and get out and get warmed up. But Roger Casey was their kit man for years, for about 20 years. I think he might still be there. If he's gone now, I'm not just sure. But poor old Roger's hand was on the table. <laughs> <laughs> he broke two of Roger's knuckles. <laughs> he said he was outside and he had to run out the door. But Roger was, ah, me fucking hell, me fucking hell. <laughs> and Milan said, I couldn't even do the warm-up there. I was in an awful state, he says. And the next thing, you know the way you come across the field and don't grab, and he says uh, to the far touchline for the dugouts, oh, out comes the doctor with Roger in a sling. Jesus, he says, I didn't hit a ball for 20 minutes. He says, I was useless. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, lads, I tell you, dressing rooms and, and the maddest places in the whole world. And look, we hope we've brightened your day for an hour and more now, I'd say. We we were saying, how long will we get out of this? I, I, I vote six more stories here. I said, we'll, we'll, we'll save them. We'll save them. These uh, we great ones when, when, when I had Father Harry with me with the fair team about mass in the morning. And lads, not Kyle Gilligan dressing up as the altar boy, I'll tell you. There's, there's about five stories about that. So, look, I won't even go there. And this is the morning of an Ireland semi-final. But, look, thanks a million, lads, for, for joining us. Thanks to Larry. Uh, brilliant, brilliant stories. And great insight as well, lads. You know, I, I think you've, you've a wealth of knowledge to we And it's brilliant, like, just to get the stories. And, and the real-life stories as well. We, we've been there. Look, stay safe, everybody. We, we'll try and stay with you here uh, for as many wins as we can. We, we keep poking it out would be a famous one in the dressing room anyway. So uh, be good and be safe. And uh, thanks for the lads for joining us. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again for joining us on the Irish Examiner Sports Podcast. And don't forget, you can read the full Irish Examiner and every supplement just as they are printed. Anytime, anywhere, on your phone, your PC, or your tablet using our e-paper. Just visit irishexaminer.com forward slash e-paper for all the details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.